Welcome to the forum, live streamed worldwide from the Leadership Studio at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. I'm Dean Michelle Williams. The forum is a collaboration between the Harvard Chan School and independent news media. Each program features a panel of experts addressing some of today's most pressing public health issues. The forum is one way the school advances the frontiers of public health and makes scientific insights accessible to policymakers and the public. I hope you find this program engaging and informative. Thank you for joining us. Welcome. My name is Tim McLaughlin. I'm a correspondent in Boston for Reuters, and I'm today's moderator. Our panelists, starting from my immediate right, are Steve Bashir, the 61st governor of Kentucky. Then we have Peter Shumlin, the 81st governor of Vermont, and a recent Menchel Senior Leadership Fellow at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. Jay Nixon, the 55th governor of Missouri, and joining us remotely is Christine Gregoire, the 26th, 22nd Governor of Washington. This event is being presented jointly with Reuters, and we are streaming live on the website of the forum and Reuters, as well as on Reuters TV. We're also streaming live on Facebook and YouTube, and this program will include a brief Q&A, and you can email questions to the forum at hsph.harvard.edu. Now every year, uh, natural disasters kill hundreds and cause billions of dollars in damage. And many worry that these events are becoming more frequent and more extreme. Today, we have a group of governors who are very experienced and they've dealt with a, a wide range of natural disasters, tsunamis, ice storms, tornadoes, flooding, drought. We'll have a chance to hear from them about their personal experiences in these times of crisis, as well, the, as well as the preparations and collaborations that have to happen to get ready for whatever nature has in store. We will also discuss how states, the federal government, local officials, NGOs, and businesses can work together to prepare and respond to the disasters. To set the stage, we're gonna look at a clip from Reuters about historic flooding in Arkansas and Oklahoma this spring. An entire neighborhood drowned in floodwaters. It's pretty devastating to see all this water in a neighborhood. And now thousands across Arkansas, Oklahoma, and Louisiana are bracing for more Thursday as swollen rivers keep rising. This is a flood of historic magnitude. It surpasses all Arkansas River flooding in our recorded history. The river, according to the National Weather Service, is high as 45 feet in some places, threatening communities and forcing many to evacuate, as the record levels raise fears that aging levees may not be able to hold up. Levees are designed to hold water temporarily, and they're going to hold water longer than they have in the past. So we are monitoring, when I say we, I'm talking about the entire team from local, county, state, and federal, more than a week of violent weather, including downpours and deadly tornadoes, has lashed the central United States, turning highways into lakes and submerging all but the roofs of some homes. 
In Oklahoma, at least six people have died in the latest round of flooding and storms, according to the state's Department of Health. And in Louisiana, the Mississippi River was also at record flood levels. Back in Arkansas, Governor Asa Hutchinson said he sent a letter to U.S. President Donald Trump asking for a federal emergency declaration for his state. Now, Governor Bashir, can you tell us about the most challenging natural disaster that you dealt with as governor? Well, Tim, I think you'll find that all of the former governors that are on the panel today will tell you that they experienced an increasing number of natural disasters while we were in office. And I don't think there's any question that they're related, at least in part, to climate change. My biggest one uh, in my eight years was an ice storm that hit Kentucky in February of 2009. And it caused every one of our 120 counties to be in states of emergency. It took down all of our power lines, took down our telephone lines. We had no heat, no lights, and no communication. And very quickly, we found out that our hospitals and our nursing homes, many of them, didn't have any backup generators. So we literally had lives on the line. I mean, kids in neonatal units, people in nursing homes, people in intensive care units. And it, it highlighted for me very quickly the communication that is necessary between state and federal officials uh, in an emergency like this. As a matter of fact, it highlighted for me the lack of communication <laughs> at times that you find because everybody has good intentions, but particularly on the federal level, you, you have silos. Uh, you've got the Corps of Engineers, um, you've got FEMA, and I mean, we needed everything and we needed it right away. We needed big generators. And so we were communicating constantly and I'd get one story from one agency, I'd get another story from another agency, but what I didn't get was any generators. And so uh, after a few hours of this, uh, fortunately I could pick up the phone and call a friend of ours, Janet Napolitano. She had been governor of Arizona. We got to know her while she was governor. She was then secretary of Homeland Security and I got her on the phone, she said, "What? you're in a mess, I know that, what can I do to help? And I said, you know, here's the story, I can't get a straight answer and I've gotta have these generators. She said, what do you want me to do? I said, what I want you to do is set up a conference call within an hour, get the leaders of FEMA and the Corps and me on the phone and I want you to cuss them out for the, within an inch of their lives and tell them <clears throat> if we don't get those generators in the next hour, their jobs are gone. So she said, okay, and that's what we did. And you know what? My generator showed up. And, and it's just a, an example of, of how siloed you can get in, in these agencies. And you know, you've got to cut through all of that uh, if you're gonna get anything done. And I know that every one of these former governors have had those kinds of experiences and you just gotta, you just gotta grab it by the neck and, and go do it. And I think we learned some valuable lessons from that and the federal government did too. That's great. Now, uh, Governor Shumlin, when we think of Vermont, we rarely think of tropical storms and hurricanes, <laughs> but Vermont took major damage from a tropical storm, Irene, in your first term. Can you tell us about that and uh, how you responded? Sure. Well, I was just, first of all, I'm always going to defer to my great governor of Kentucky here for anything today because he's actually related to a governor 
So I've got, to, I've got to treat him with tremendous respect. The rest of us are out on the streets looking for jobs. <laughs> Listen, congratulations, by the way. Thank you. His son's recount is over, right? Yep. He won. He's going to be a great governor. Not as good as his dad, but he's going to be a great governor. Uh, listen, uh, so this is what happened to me. And we all went to baby governor school. We all got elected at the same time with the biggest class of new governors, I think, in the history of America. Anyway, uh, they don't teach you how to deal with significant storms that come your way. So as Tim just mentioned, Vermont is not the place that you think of for hurricanes. This is what happened to me. August of, uh, had only been in, in office for a few months, first term. Uh, Hurricane Irene is coming our way. Everyone thinks it's going to hit Manhattan. The, the mayor, the governor are trying to evacuate buildings and get ready. And they, 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 Anyway, it didn't. It missed Manhattan. It hit Vermont. It totally devastated us. So literally wiped out our roads, 540 miles of roads, bridges. It killed seven good Vermonters who got you know, taken down by little teeny brooks that became raging rivers. We got 21 inches of rain dumped on Vermont in a matter of hours. So when you have a state that is mountainous with valleys all over the place, you know what happens. Extraordinary flooding. You couldn't get from east to west. Houses, businesses, just total, complete devastation like we've never seen before. So, you know, as a governor, you sit there and you like, you're just, your head is spinning. Where do you start? Everyone's isolated, no one has electricity, no one has power, no one has water, or many people don't. They can't get out of their communities, you can't get them to healthcare facilities. Uh, unmitigated disaster. I think, uh, you know, there are a lot of lessons for all of us. And what I always say when I think back on Hurricane Irene is, you know, that's just a warning sign. And I think the other governors would agree with me, for what lies ahead. In other words, if you just take the carbon that we've emitted, knowing that there's about a 20, 30 percent year lag before you feel the effects. You know, these are little warning signs. You know, you look to open up the press today and, you know, they always call these in the press, you know, 100-year events. I'm like, really? I had three of them when I was governor. But a 100-year event in Venice right now, right? Six under, underwater. And you read about the, the wildfires in California that just happened two weeks ago, still, some, still burning. You know, 100-year event, except that we had it happen last year and the year before. So I think, you know, the lesson for all of us is, uh, you know, in addition to the kind of snags that Governor Bashir just referred to, how do we rebuild for resiliency knowing that these are little warning signs for the tragedy and the tremendous pain that we're going to face going forward as a result of the carbon that we've already emitted? And I think that's, you know, the conversation we all need to have. We scrambled. We did all, all the things you got to do to rebuild. Incredibly painful. Vermont came together like, uh, you know, you couldn't dream of a more, uh, 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 highly spirited people who get out, you know, they don't wait for the federal government to show up. They take out the chainsaws, they pull out the tractors, they start taking the backhoes out into the roads. You know, we go into the rivers and try to get the gravel that washed out back on so we can rebuild, even though, you know, my environmental people are freaking out. You know, <laughs> you do, you go through all these hurdles. <clears throat> the biggest lesson for me was that when it came to FEMA, that, uh, that Governor Bashir was just talking about, my biggest battle was that, and I think biggest lesson, we were still in the era in 2011 where the rules at FEMA were that you had to rebuild the way that, it, that, that the storm had found your disaster. And I was like, really? Like, I literally, this was my third storm. I'd only been in office for seven, eight months. And I, was, I, and I called up President Obama and the team and I said, are we really, are you really telling us that you want to, it was my second natural disaster, it was the second time I'd gone for federal aid. You really want me to put the culverts back so I can come back to you in three, four, five, six months and tell you they washed out again? Like, there's got to be a smarter way to do this. Anyway, 
the result was that we sent our team down to Washington. We worked together with Obama and Craig Fugate, the administrator at that time, and they were just extraordinary. And over time, you know, it took a little time, we changed the rules. And I think not just for Vermont, for, for everybody now, we rebuild for resiliency. And I think that was one of the great lessons that came out of Irene up in Vermont. Governor Gregoire, um, you're unique in that you have to deal, you dealt with tsunamis and wildfires. Tell us about your preparation. What did that look like? And what do you think governors need to keep in mind as they prepare you know, for other kinds of disasters? You know, some lessons learned there. Well, it's true. We, uh, we on the West Coast uh, really um, see uh, the threat of tsunamis, earthquakes, uh, and forest fires. Um, and it's, it's, it's a constant threat, to be perfectly honest with you. It was a wake-up call in 2011 when Japan had its major tsunami. And we prepared. We were, we were ready. But uh, just for those who may not be familiar with how you prepare, you have a warning system on your beach. Uh, and when that warning system hits, it doesn't tell you how big it is and it doesn't tell you how quickly it's coming. And then for the most part on those beaches that particularly in the summertime uh, have a lot of tourists, there's probably only one road in and out of that area. So if in fact the system works as it should still, can you imagine the potential problems that we're going to have? So we're constantly trying to find new ways to address that should we be hit by uh, another uh, big tsunami. In the area of earthquakes, um, we're always in, in the western part of our state waiting for the big one to arrive. The, the last one was in 2001, uh, it was 6.8, about 60 miles south of Seattle. Um, but we were within literally seconds, less than 10 seconds, of taking down the largest floating bridge in the United States, uh, just out, out of Seattle, connecting over a, a lake and the entire seawall uh, in Seattle and a major elevated highway. I can't even remotely imagine the devastation. We've replaced both structures, but we are constantly on the alert and on the ready. The area where we are progressively seeing things get worse and worse and worse every year, I declared more emergencies than any of my predecessors and most combined really relates to wildfires. And you can see what has happened most recently in California. It's hitting the West Coast from British Columbia to California because we're highly forested and we have some beetle infestation um, and we have drought conditions, the results of which is we're having these terrible forest fires. So we're all prepared, I think, every one of us to deal with one large forest fire. But what has happened is the frequency every year we can expect it but they're getting larger and larger. We are not prepared to deal with two or more simultaneously. Now, we help each other. Um, our crews from Washington State have just returned from California. Um, but I will tell you, um, the lesson I learned when I first got into office, like my friends, uh, my fellow governors, was you got to prepare. Prepare, prepare, and then you cannot over-prepare, to be perfectly honest with you. So we have a command center run by our National Guard. We have representation there from local government, county government, state and federal. And we're constantly paper drilling, but we also do simulations. We do it with British Columbia, across our international border, as well as with our, our friends to the south and to the east, Idaho and Oregon. 
but no matter what you do, you got to prepare for the worst. And even if you do, something is unexpected. Some circumstance, something happens that you just could not, did not anticipate. So the best thing I learned is constant preparation for the worst and the unexpected. And that's what we've dedicated our state to. Thank you for that. Now, Governor Nixon, you're governor of Missouri when one of the deadliest tornado strikes happened in Joplin in 2011. Tell us about that event and what did you learn during the response? Well, I think, uh, well, thank you and thanks everybody here and a great group of folks that, that have managed in difficult times and done amazing jobs doing it. Uh, the numbers at Joplin are really kind of set the scene, really. You know, you had a situation in which three tornadoes came together and they were downward pressure <coughs> tornadoes. So instead of bouncing across, they just ground into, and so you had a six mile long, about a mile wide area in which you had uh, 11,000 cars wiped out, the hospital wiped out, 161 dead, over 1,000 people hospitalized, schools wiped out. Um, and so you had this situation similar to what, what uh, Peter was talking about. It, you didn't have communication, you didn't have anything in, in, in that area. Um, and I, I, we learned a lot from it. Um, and one of the things was that these non-governmental organizations, these, the, if you organize the charity help, if you organize these other forces of good, uh, they can be a force enhancer in, a, in an incredibly significant way. The other thing we learned, natural disasters are harder on people who already have hard lives. Uh, they, w floods happen, what's the old line? You live down by the river. Um, they happen to people who are already challenged. And so bringing in the social service agencies, bringing in the mental health agencies, one of the things we did was set up a mental health center in Joplin. And you look then two, three, four, five years later, you have fewer suicides than people would thought, fewer drug problems than you would think when you look at the statistics. So remembering that these natural disasters affect families and individuals that are already challenged and you're ready in that vein also is important. Plus the other thing, you've got to own the information. The governor's office is a place in which real facts come. When you don't have uh, TV or you don't have radio or you don't have things, rumors start. We had a situation on a tornado in St. Louis where they somebody started a rumor on Twitter that it had hit this hotel and there were hundreds of victims. It just wasn't true. Uh, and you always, down in Joplin, they said 1,500 people were missing. That wasn't true. Um, obviously, we had a lot of people missing, but there weren't 1,500. It got so bad that people were calling in from other states who had committed murders to say that the victim was in Joplin during the time. <laughs> you know, uh, seriously. Um, but uh, the bottom line is that engaging with these non-governmental organizations, the other thing I, I really recommend is thinking beyond the tragedy. Uh, if you're going to lead, you've got to be out in front of people. And the best way to do that, and some of the preparation thing that Christine talked about, is things to do on a week later, a month later, um, two months later. And if you aren't looking on down the line when these things hit, uh, then you're going to be playing defense the entire way. But the bottom line is you've got to count on the goodness of people. Uh, but when you get a, a, a challenge of this magnitude, the, the governor has to provide confidence, has to be on the ground in the place and see it. Uh, we work very closely with our religious partners, our faith-based folks. I mean, people tell their preacher stuff they'd never tell the government. Um, and, and it's a very useful uh, way to get additional information. But we learned a lot, uh, and I'm proud to say that, that one year, well, quite frankly, that same year when we started school, uh, the tornado was in May on graduation day. When school started August 17th, 98% of the kids were back. Our fear was that we were going to lose a town. 
like Greenwood, Kansas, after that tornado happened there, two years later, only 23% of the people were there. I'm proud to say that Joplin is back, it's growing, uh, more population it had at the time, but these NGOs and the churches and the community were exceptionally vital and essential to get that kind of recovery. Thank you. So we're gonna shift the conversation to look at these issues at a little more uh, you know, deeper dive on them. And so let's start with the second clip from Reuters, and this is about the heat wave that affected most of the country this past summer. The heat wave is here. Temperatures across the eastern and central parts of the U.S. soared on Saturday as officials warned residents to stay indoors. Everyone's got to take it seriously. This is a potentially dangerous weather situation. The National Weather Service said temperatures are due to reach the mid to upper 90s, but with the humidity, the heat indices will hit as high as 115 degrees in some areas. The heat wave is sprawling from Kansas to the Atlantic coast and from South Carolina to Maine with some 124 million people affected. In Baltimore, Maryland, authorities reported more than 2,400 outages, including at a senior center. This is a deadly situation. In New York City, the MTA suspended subway service on multiple lines during Friday rush hour due to a system malfunction, leaving commuters sweltering and frustrated. Hot and aggravated, like it's just, it makes no sense at all. I'm oh, just trying to get home. Oh my gosh, with the heat and the messed up train, it's too much. It's just too much because there's no air. Forecasters say the heat wave is expected to continue through Sunday with little overnight relief. Okay, so we've heard about the heat wave and we know about the flooding and all these natural disasters. And so, um, Governor Shumlin, you, you touched on this. How, you know, when we rethink how we're going to rebuild after a natural disaster, maybe you could just kick us off by giving, giving us one or two examples of how you redid it. In a, in a different way, after you're getting, I guess, more uh, flexibility from FEMA and the federal government. Yeah, I mean, I think all of we governors face the challenge that Governor Nixon has referred to, which is, you know, you, you have this mess on your hands. Nobody gives you instructions. You gotta be a leader, stand up and make it happen. And then after it's over, how do you turn that into a situation where when it happens again, because we all know it's coming at you in some form or other, you know, what do you do? I had. A, a bit of an advantage in respect that when I ran for governor, it was bottom of the recession, that's when we all ran, there wasn't a politician in America that wasn't running on jobs. And one of those things I said to create jobs was, hey, listen, if you elect me, we're going to shut down our aging nuclear power plant that was leaking, which uh, uh, was long overdue, and they were going to relicense it for another 40 years. We're going to build out solar and wind like mad. We're going to turn our utilities into energy efficiency companies instead of companies that just try to produce as much juice and sell as much of it to customers as they can. And when we do that, we will reduce rate. I think we'll put money in Vermonters' pockets because renewables are cheaper than oil and coal coming from out of state. I said, we'll create jobs because any transformation creates thousands of jobs. But I said, most importantly, we'll show how a small state can be an example of where we've got to go to avoid big storms and tragedies that we're all talking about here. So when Irene hit, and you got to remember, I, you know, most of us, we, you win elections just like uh, Governor Bashir's son, in tight elections the first time, the second time you usually do better. So you got to remember that roughly half the people don't agree with you. And my opponent said, hey, you know what? This guy's nuts. When he shuts down a nuclear power plant, he's going to kill thousands of jobs right there. 
He said, you know, renewables are more expensive than coal and oil, so that's going to cost, take money out of your pockets, not put it in. And this climate stuff is all garbage anyway, because it's, it's, it's not created by human, you know, this is all fooey. You know, it's a normal argument that Republicans make. Anyway, the long and short of it is when Irene hit, literally nine months in, and Vermonters are all going, holy God, we've never seen anything like this, like 21 inches of rain? That doesn't, this isn't Costa Rica, you know? Uh, and so they literally started going, hey, you know, maybe this guy's got a point about some of this stuff. So my point is, I think that once you get through the tragedy of rebuilding and, 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 the, and the pain of, of that, that, that's associated with just and just like Governor Nixon said, it is the, it's the folks who are struggling the most get hit the hardest every single time in this. So you got to dig your way through all that. But I think the important message for all of us has to be, how do we change our behavior really quickly? So that we, and we ended up being the number one solar state in America. We put up so much wind power, they wanted to throw me out. You know, like, oh, we got beautiful mountains and someone's putting windmills all over them. The guy that came in after me actually ran on a, on a platform that he'd do a moratorium on wind. And he won. You know, that's how much people like it in their backyard. But, you know, I kept saying, hey, it beats the alternative. Like, we were all kind of burnt up here, you know, or flooded or, or, bo or both. Uh, my point is that there are things that you can do in addition to just uh, crisis management as a governor that will help lead us to a less drastic future. And I think that's really important for us to keep the eye on the ball on that. And any of the governors can chime in on this, but uh, we talked a little bit about there's a disproportionate impact on people who just before the disaster don't have resources at the ready. They don't have insurance. They don't, they're just, uh, they don't have a lot to fall back on. So maybe uh, one of the governors can talk about how we help those folks, you know, recover from a disaster. Well, I think one of the underused, under-focused areas that we found a lot after Joplin and a couple other things is in the whole mental health area. I think getting mental health professionals on the ground uh, is extremely important early on. Uh, they can then diagnose the general feelings uh, so that so that you don't have uh, more spousal abuse, more you know illegal drug use, all of the various things that happen. Um, and then the other thing is you've got to empower individuals uh, to be in charge. I mean, uh, Peter was talking about the folks of Vermont. I, I'd say the people in Missouri are the same, and I'm sure all of us are very proud of the folks of our respective uh, states. Uh, even the Costa Ricans, I'm sure, are proud. Um, but um, they have to be part of it. The people have to be part of this. You're, you're talking about safety, you're talking about recovery, and, and engaging folks uh, at a personal, local level that they're helping fix back their towns and that, it, that there's a better, as, as Governor Shumlin said, is there a better tomorrow here? This is not going to be something that happens all the time. We get worse. So remaining as you can realistically optimistic uh, is, is exceptionally important. So it's mental health resources on the ground, keeping the regular parts of people's lives moving forward. That's why we were so committed to starting school on time. I mean, we didn't even have schools. We, we rebuilt, we took a mall and turned it into a high school in 55 days. We took a factory and turned it into middle school in 51 days. Uh, not a lot of windows, but, um, but uh, and I had to negotiate to, to get this mall. The only difficult part of the negotiation was that the owner of the mall wanted the school lunch program to run through the food court. And we, we, were, <laughs> we were unwilling to go to the food court level of, of the deal. <laughs> You're taught. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it, uh, we had to do a few things. We, we paid a little money, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, the point is thinking about normal things. 
and getting people back to the normal life that they live is exceptionally important if you're going to get through these things and get to recovery. Because if you do that, then you're going to have plenty of time to plan for the next one. You're going to have some, some, and what, once again, what others have said about this resiliency rebuild. I'm in the middle of a project now looking at levees, some of which haven't been rebuilt from last year in the Mississippi and the Missouri River. What do we do? How do you choose which ones are going to be rebuilt? Uh, in essence, what property are you giving up? Uh, none in Kentucky, obviously. Uh, you know, none in Missouri. That's what the attitude you take. You, you just don't want it to happen to you. Uh, so I think that's when you can build the relationships that you're a source of information that's real, that you have a broader interest in this other than just getting people back to where they were the moment before this happened, and you engage the public in moving forward together. Only then can you amass the kind of the kind of goodwill you need to ignore a lot of laws and regulations, which you have to do. In in uh, I used to say after Joplin, the thing I loved about it most, most was you could just sign these orders, get rid of laws for a while. Yeah, it was great. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean you had two hospitals in, in Joplin. You had two hospitals, and it was one of the last places in the country where they were closed systems. If you went to one hospital system, you could not go to the other one. Well, one gets hit by a tornado, it's wiped out. So I just signed an order saying. You can go either one. Yeah. Uh, I don't. Yeah, done. And everybody followed it because you know and, and whatnot. And it had absolutely no mark of any sort of legality to it. But uh, it worked because people absorbed it, understood it. We talked to the leaders of all this sort of stuff. So sometimes you got to think out of the box. But if you don't have the people with you, um, you're not going to make any progress. Well, yeah, we, what what uh, these disasters do cause is uh, what Jay's talking about. It wakes people up, no, no question. Mm -hmm. And it does give you the opportunity then to do some things and to make some things happen that, that you, you don't otherwise have. And so you have to take advantage of these things to, to cause, you know, we made all the hospitals and nursing homes and, and all of these places get their generator, you know, get backup generation. Uh, you you get communities to start planning to where, well, where will we have a shelter if we need a shelter? Where would we bring in the food? Where will we do this? Where will we do that? And uh, it, it does give you the opportunity to, to make some things happen uh, and move your state forward uh, in that sense so that you're more prepared and, and you're looking to the future. I'm just remembering between the two of you, just what you're making. So one of the calls I got in the middle of the night when Irene was hitting was my uh, secretary of administration calls and said, we got to evacuate the state hospital. The state hospital is the hospital where we have all of our acute care mental health patients. In Vermont, it was in one place. It had been there for generations. <laughs> the building had been condemned by the federal government. Governors had been condemning the place verb, you know, publicly for literally 50 years from both parties, and no one had done anything about it because it's expensive to build new state hospitals. So anyway, you know, you're sitting there at two in the morning where we got to move everybody out right now. And it's just one of a million problems you're dealing with. And you're like, you know, who's going to take all of your acute care mental health patients on a phone call? Hey, uh, we're looking for beds for our entire state hospital. No one is set up to do that. Anyway, my point is, just as Governor Bashir said, and I'm sure that, uh, you know, Governor Gregoire found the same kind of things out in her state, 
what I said, and everyone was like, well, you got to put him back as quickly as you can. I was like, no, we've been trying to get him out of there for 60 years. You know, like, why are we going back? We are not going back. Very controversial because the whole community goes, all these jobs, blah, blah, blah. I said, no, we're not going back. And we, we use that opportunity to right. rebuild the resilience. We're not going back, putting the hospital in a floodplain in a building that literally was like one flew over the cuckoo's nest. No kidding. It was an embarrassment. And we now have state-of-the-art acute care mental health facilities. But you got to take advantage of the, of the challenges. Governor Gregoire, um, I'm sure you have a lot of uh, insight on this. Well, I don't know. About, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't know about that. My my colleagues have done a terrific job. Um, I, the only thing I would like to add is, you know, more often than not, as as Jay suggested, the people that get hurt the worst are the people who can least afford it, and oftentimes they have, and more often than not, no insurance. And what happens when the natural disaster hits? is you get an immense amount of attention, immense amount of volunteerism. You get people there and reaching out and, and all of the issues that we just talked about. But then as time draws on, when all that um, attention goes away, uh, then these people have to recover and they don't have the means by which to do so. So part of the job, I think, of a governor is to not let everybody forget that. And while they donate and they volunteer when the catastrophe or disaster is happening, afterwards, these people have to rebuild their homes. They have to rebuild their lives. And they continually need our attention, need our help, need our assistance. So what we've done with respect to that is we've asked not only our nonprofits, but our private sector to be there afterwards so that people can rebuild their lives, rebuild their homes, and so on, so that we don't forget and we don't walk away when the natural disaster has waned and people start to forget. So, but with that, I also want to reemphasize everything my colleague said about what, take every time we had a natural disaster, we had to have a debrief and everybody who was involved was a part of it. And then we tried to take critical steps to make sure we were ready for whatever that natural disaster taught us. But again, uh, every natural disaster, no matter how many we have, teaches us something. So we're always learning, always preparing, and always taking new actions to make sure we're ready the next time. I had one quick follow-up. Uh, in an earlier conversation, we, we spoke about people want to help, and that's kind of a, it creates a new problem, if you will, because you mm -hmm. want to make sure that you get the right things for the right people at the right time. So early on, you may need generators, and in the second phase, perhaps you need items that people aren't sending at that point. Can, can you guys talk about how, to, how you coordinate that and some of the challenges that you've faced in just getting the right supplies to the right people at the right time? Well, I will say the non-governmental organizations are very good at that. I remember the story from Joplin that um, <clears throat> I had an event at a place right afterwards, and the, the lady that was running it came in and said, would you come here a second, Governor? I said, sure. She said, come here and look at this. And we walked in the back of the room, and there was an 18-wheeler, and she opened it up. The whole trailer was entirely full of toothbrushes. Uh, and she said, would you tell everybody across the country we don't need any more toothbrushes, okay? But everybody, like, for whatever reason, they all got, we, had, we still have them down there if you want them. Um, <laughs> 
And so that was one of the ideas that, that put together for us. We had our, our what we call our faith-based initiative in which we had meetings uh, in seven places a year, organized it. We put people that so that so that exactly as, as Christine said, you could have you could have people coming a week later, two weeks later, and we were evaluating at that time. But these non-governmental organizations can be extremely helpful, and if you help coordinate them, um, they're pretty they're pretty amazing. Um, and but but if not, what you have is a whole bunch of stuff you don't need from a whole bunch of people that think they're doing good work that doesn't get you anything. And you got to recognize that at the very beginning. And for us and volunteers in, in Joplin, we had about 170,000 volunteers from all 50 states over the next year come down there. Providing a safe place for them to work was fine, but also making sure that they were working on the projects that needed to get done and not just wandering around town. Um, <laughs> And, you know, like yeah. one of the big problems I had, the FEMA, and the FEMA came in and put the trailers in for people to stay at for a while. Uh, there's actually two towns there, Joplin and Webb City. Webb City's a pretty good football program. Joplin, at the time, wasn't as good. They put the FEMA trailers in, jo in, in so that the Webb City coach, it, they were actually in Webb City, the Webb City football coach was going and recruiting the players to come work for him. <laughs> we had to stop the recruiting of the players out of the, uh, out of the trailers. You know, things like that that you don't think about. But in a football or a basketball town, if they're trying to steal players, those become real issues. I mean, so you've got to be grounded enough in the community that you can pick up these things that are going on. Because, like I say, it doesn't take many calls from the governor to the football coach saying, hey, quit doing that, okay? Um, and, and the bottom line is that, that good information is hard to get. That's why early on I said there's a lot of bad information out there in these situations. Limited amount of communication capacity, limited amount of news capacity, focus on the disasters that are happening each day while as people are recovering. So making sure you've got really good ears on the ground and people respect what you say is extremely important to get the long-term recovery you need. You know, you talk about Food is one of the main things that you've got to get out there and water. I mean, because when we had our ice storm, guess what runs the uh, water plants? Electricity. You know, no water, no nothing. And so uh, we were, by that time, bringing in just loads and loads of these pre-prepared -pre uh, meals and stuff. Everybody has them out there, and all at once a news story hits from another state about some contamination. Oh, yeah. Uh, of these kinds of things. And, you know, the news media all just descends on me, you know. And so what did I do? I got on a helicopter. I flew down to the place that had these meals, had the TV cameras, and I ate one of them. And, and your, lieutenant, your lieutenant governor was rooting all the way. Oh, I mean, I, oh. <laughs> I, had the, I had the National Guard stationed outside to get me to the hospital if something happened. But, but you know, I mean... Yeah, we we couldn't just pick up all those all those packets and and send them back. I mean, we had to eat them, and so we did, and everybody was fine. But you know, it's that's what Chris was saying. You're always running into something just absolutely unique and crazy uh, that you've got to handle at the moment. You know what? I'd be curious what how other governors found this, but I found that once you know you've done the rebuilding and you've been through the a lot of the pain and there's still a lot of residual pain which is all the folks that have lost everything they had everything they knew i mean it's really as and as governor nixon referred to the mental health resource you need but i found the toughest conversations we had was about and i'd be curious how you all dealt with this about when you had to go in and say listen you you lost everything you live in a community that has been flooded before there's a federal buyout program 
it doesn't make sense for us to rebuild your home in the place where it was. And you want to have some tough conversations, man. That is it. Because you're literally going in and saying to someone, in Vermont's case, it was often people who lived in these communities for generations. It was their entire center of their lives. And you're going in and saying, no, actually, not so much rebuilding. This is insane to rebuild in your location. And we had some really tough conversations around that in Vermont. I suspect my fellow governors did too. That's going to be the conversation going forward. I hate to say it, it's not going to be whether it's a house. It's going to be communities. It's going to be cities. It's going to be entire, you know, Venice six feet underwater coming our way too. And there's a point where you've got to start asking the question, how do we actually continue to rebuild in the places that we know are going to be vulnerable? If this is a warning sign for what lies ahead, are we going to listen to the warnings or are we just going to be stupid? It's tough conversation. Um, if I could add one more um, issue that comes up, the, the idea that the generosity of the public sometimes is overwhelming and it's not directed at exactly what you need. You may need generators and you get a whole lot of other things. But one of the things that typically happens, and we have to always be on guard, and three of us are former attorneys general, is you got these guys who come in and take advantage of a terrible disaster and start preying on people's good intentions and trying to get money. And of course, the money isn't going anywhere to help the victims. And so um, when you're trying to manage one of these disasters, one of the things you always have to think about is those who will take advantage of the situation to the peril of both those who've been the subject of the disaster and those who are well-meaning and trying to, to do something good. So uh, always getting that information out and getting credible uh, philanthropies, names and, and numbers out is critically important. That's a great point. One thing we did in Irene is we set up our own fund. It was a state, you know, we, we, we appointed a board, set up a 501c3, started taking donations and said to Vermonters, if you want an organization that you can trust, give to this organization. And it, it worked really well. The other thing is the worldwide nature. With, the, with media now, the worldwide nature of these and the generosity comes from a lot of places other than just your state. Uh, I remember we were about six weeks after Joplin. We announced we are going to start things back up again. Um, we had made a decision that since we didn't have any libraries, they were going to go paperless at the school. I get this call from a sheik in UAE. So you take those sheet calls, uh, I guess. Um, well, it was vetted a little bit. I, I think it was officially a sheet. Um, do you tell him? Do you tell him to go solar? Yeah. <laughs> I said I need a little of that oil money right here in Missouri. Is what I said it. I just go. Um, you made plenty of profits over my folks. We we drive big they have trucks. Of sun. Yeah. yeah, they do. They have sun too. Bottom line is that he 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 said, "What can I do to help?" And I said, "Well, we don't have books." And he said, "Would it help if I bought every kid in the high school?" A computer. And I said, yeah, that would. It'd be about a million dollars. And he was like, well, where do I send a check? And so he did. And we did. And it did. Um, <laughs> but all I'm saying is that that's the modern media. The people that are going to help you sometimes are people you'll never meet and never see again. Right. Um, and that's why having these, these, these safety things in play for the money is so important because somebody did check and he was in fact a sheik and yes it was a check and it did come and it was spent on those computers and we had receipts for everything and we're able to look at it. I think that as Christine points out there's a lot of folks that try to try to 
profit, shall we say, off of some of this sort of stuff. Uh, and governors, I think, are in a very unique position to make sure that, that the money is done correctly uh, and that it's uh, open. Uh, but there is a huge amount of generosity. You shouldn't just think about the churches or the people in your own state. Okay, so um, I think we'll take, um, there's a couple of questions that I'm seeing, and one of them I think is pretty interesting. So after you have a disaster, there's usually a cleanup. What about um, toxic materials like, uh, you know, sometimes with floods you read about how coal pits are, you know, they're flooded out and all the, all the toxic materials are in downstream drinking water, things like that. That has happened uh, uh, on many occasions. I wonder if any of you could share what, what sort of things you've had to deal with and how you've uh, lessened the damage, so to speak. Yeah, you, you have that with virtually any nat natural disaster that any of us experience. And uh, with the flooding in particular, uh, you end up with a lot of pollution of different kinds, and it, it really emphasizes the, the importance of coordination of every kind of agency that you have. You know, you, you, you immediately think of the National Guard when you think of a disaster or, or you know, FEMA and these kinds of things, but, you know, your, your, uh, your energy and, and, and natural resources cabinet you know, the folks that uh, regulate water companies and all of these kinds of things, they've got to be involved in this because there are so many uh, unknown uh, uh, problems that pop up on any kind of disaster like this. And uh, you, can, you can lose it real quick uh, if you're not uh, on top of it going in. And so that, that type of, of coordination and working together um, and being prepared for that is, is uh, essential. We were concerned about the air quality around Joplin. It's an area with a lot of asbestos, a lot of lead in the construction. And when you have, um, you know, almost 7,700 houses wiped out, there's just a lot of stuff in the air. So what we did is worked uh, with our DNR and EPA to set up uh, air monitoring uh, every hour through all the areas. But more importantly than that, we coordinated that into the volunteers because the calls we would give, somebody wants to come <clears> to Oregon to help us, is it safe? After 9-11, you, you had firefighters and others that, that got sick. And I think you almost have to certify that it's a safe place for people to work. Um, and, and if you don't do that, then, then you won't get the help. That was, that was extremely um, helpful to us. I think floods are the worst. I think people just straight pipe everything they can when the water goes up. And uh, um, it, we have had to clean up uh, a lot of things that you wouldn't normally uh, um, expect. Um, but the bottom line is if you don't plan for those sorts of issues, uh, you're going to get uh, turn on them. And you got to watch. We had a little mold developed down in Joplin uh, that, that caused some wounds to get problematic. Uh, you got to get those reports and know where they are and, and figure out physically where they're coming from and so that the public needs them. The other thing is having this information available to the public instantaneously. The public now has access to public health data. They'll look at it. Uh, you, can, you can build confidence by giving bad news uh, as opposed to confidence by giving good news. Say this is a problem where it's a problem. They know you know that and consequently they build confidence. It's ultimately a confidence builder that's necessary for any recovery. We moved about two and a half times the debris of the Twin Towers out of Joplin uh, in uh, 94 days. I say 94 because the feds only paid for 90 and I got a little hurt. Um, but um, so we, we were moving a lot of stuff and a lot of things can happen there and a lot of it was trash and, and bad stuff. So we have a question from... Uh, I'll give you an example oh, if I, I might. Um, 
uh, with respect to forest fires, because obviously it's the people within the vicinity of the forest fire. But what happened to us, not this summer, but the preceding summer was the really bad forest fires in British Columbia. And the smoke came down and was so intense that, and, and proximity-wise, we're quite a ways away. But Seattle, literally, when you went out on the street, you could not see very far in front of you at all. And in fact, for days, the air quality was deemed the worst in the world in downtown Seattle from forest fires in British Columbia. So we immediately got our health people out in the media telling most vulnerable people how to react, what to do, how to take necessary precautions and so on. So we don't often think that with something like a forest fire, you're going to have that kind of consequence, but it's real and it's happening now every single summer to us where the same kind of consequences from the forest fires are reaching miles, hundreds of miles away, and we're having to have our health people get out there and get the information out and do the best we can. We've now got our three forestry schools from Washington, Oregon, and British Columbia working together on ways in which we can try to manage this better uh, so that we don't have the intensity of the health consequences following these fires. So I was going to say, uh, Penny had a question, and how this is something that I think about. How do I best prepare myself and my family for the unexpected? So I'm thinking about jugs of water in the basement, you know, uh, meals ready to eat if I have access to that, batteries, those sorts of things. But maybe, maybe you all can shed more light on, on what, how the ordinary citizen can be prepared for the worst possible thing imaginable. Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean I used to say, I used to say yeah. keep, keep all your paperwork close and know where it is. <laughs> but when the house has moved like a mile away, it's a little relevance. Yeah, we had to go back down and give people birth certificates, car titles. We kept saying, get your insurance for your car. And they're like, we don't have a title for the car. And quite frankly, I haven't seen a car in three or four days either. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so some of the normal things you would tell them, keep all your play things in a safe location. I, I'm a big person to think about attitude. I mean, clearly you, you have to be safe, but, but People are going to recover if they want to recover. And if they feel like they have a government that's listening to them and helping them do that, they'll be patient. But, but if you lose patience in one of these, and we've all had times when you lose that point, the other thing I want to say, because at some point we're going to run out of time here, the other thing as governors you do is you listen to other governors and see what they've done. I mean, I remember like yesterday, the ice storm that came in, Governor Brashear called up the entirety of his National Guard. We were in an op center, and somebody said, Kentucky just called up the entirety of his National Guard. And, and, you know, we're like, they're serious people down there. It certainly wasn't done for press benefit or for some sort of show. Uh, this is, it, it led us to realize the, the magnitude. That storm hit a portion of Missouri, not the entirety of it. Um, but as firefighters, when we had the first canopy to canopy fires in Missouri, they came. We, we went west and got training for our folks uh, in, in what was going to happen. And, you know, if we need ice cream, we go to Ben and Jerry, go to Vermont and get yeah. Ben and Jerry's, you know, or whatever. But I mean, we learn from each other. And, we, and the, whether the, whether I sent you maple syrup. I know you did. I, and whether you're talking directly to the governor, I think governors are unique in the sense that their staff and their senior people, they're basically on order to cooperate with other states, especially in situations like this. And there's just a lot of good information shared and strategy shared at a level below governors. That, that makes a huge difference. And, and so the other governors, what they have done, the other states, what they have done, is really oftentimes a, a pathway to move forward. 
really is? Yeah, I, I think the answer to the question, I mean, I, I don't know that you can prepare because, frankly, you don't know what you're preparing for. So what I always say to folks on in a question like that is, listen, maybe it's better since you don't know what's coming at you, a tornado, a storm, whatever, where it's coming, if it's really going to hit you or your neighbors or 26 states over, we know it's coming. And what I find so extraordinary about these conversations generally, when you read the press, when we have these conversations is, we all go into the tragedy. We pay attention to all that happens. We send some money for help. We always feel trying to sympathy. Governors help out each other. We send in National Guards. We do all this stuff. We give advice, blah, blah, blah. Then we move on to the next tragedy. And it's the next tragedy nowadays is two or three weeks later or two or three hours later in some other part of the world. And it seems to me what we don't have the conversation about enough is, how can we be screwing this up so badly? Like literally, you go look at the UN climate change report that came out exactly a year ago today almost, which is the biggest scientific study of scientific studies ever conducted. Go look at what we got to do by 2050 to avert two degrees centigrade, total, complete disaster for everything that lives and breathes. And you go, well, wow, we aren't doing too well here, team. Like, we are dragging our feet. We're in denial. We're the only country that pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord, for God's sakes. We're having a debate about whether it's real or not. Are you kidding me? Like, you got a bunch of governors up here telling you, no. I mean, we all know. We know what's going on. So I think it's better to use our energy to say to elected leaders, to our neighbors, to our friends, how do we change our behavior in ways that drastically reduces the amount of carbon we're putting into the atmosphere so that all of our neighbors aren't preparing for disaster like this in another 10 or 20 years? Like all of our neighbors, everyone we know, and not just the people, by the way, the bats and the bears and the bees and everything else that lives on this planet. We got a big problem, folks. Let's focus on the prize. That's the prize. And time's running out. <laughs> okay, maybe to wrap this. If I could this. just add one thing, a, a personal lesson is when we had the 2001 earthquake here, I couldn't get a hold of my children. And, um, you know, I was trying to take care of my office and so on, but I had, I didn't have a means by which to take care of our, our, my children. So here, when we think of things like earthquakes, we are now advising everybody to, to have their children well understanding what they should do in that circumstance and how they can make contact with their parents or otherwise so that, that everybody feels good and calm about, uh, I, I, at least I know I've told my children what to do, I've told my family what to do, uh, and so on. So I, I agree with everything my colleagues have said, but that's one thing that we're doing in Washington State because the earthquake can be unbelievably disruptive and you can lose all communication and we're trying to prepare ourselves and our families. That's a good practical uh, tip, and I think sometimes we forget about those types of things, just a basic communication uh, mechanism to have. Uh, just to wrap this up, any other sort of takeaway solutions or messages that any of you have for, for us? One thing that I would just go back and emphasize, and we've all talked about it uh, throughout <coughs> this hour, uh, is the importance of effective communication. And you know, when you're a governor, or, or when you're a mayor, you, you don't really realize, I think, the effect you can have sometimes just by people hearing you mm -hmm. and hearing from you. I know during that ice storm, uh, as Jay said, I called up the entire National Guard and they said, what do you want us to do? I said, I want you in every town in our state walking up and down the streets and knocking on doors and checking on people. And let's, let's make sure everybody's okay. 
And, and so they were doing that, and I went down. There were a few little radio stations that were still on the air, and I got on the radio stations and just talked to people about, we're okay, everything's going to be all right, and all that. And interestingly enough, later on, I kept hearing, you know what, when I saw the National Guard walking up the street, I knew we'd be okay. When I heard your voice on the radio, it's going to be okay. And, I mean, my God, you know, you don't realize the effect you can have on people by just being there and being a part of it and communicating to people uh, and, and just telling them, hey, yeah. we're here. Giving them a hug. That's right. You're yeah. giving them a hug and you're saying, we're going to be okay. And, uh, you know, that's, that's probably one of the most important things we as people that have been in leadership roles can understand is the effect you can have. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you another, it sounds, it sounds almost goofy, but pets are important. The number of people that die because they won't leave their house, because they want to stay with their dog or cat, even if a tornado is coming or a flood, uh, without going through specific examples of that, I've been involved in some of that sort of stuff. And, and you have to have a plan where people can take, know where their kids are, have a place that they can take their pets with them. Uh, it's amazing how many people die because they would rather stay with their dog or cat. Um, and, and there's no real point to that other than have a plan, and, and I don't know where Huck is right now, my dog, so it's, but, um, <laughs> I, but it's important. People will not leave. I mean, they, yeah. they just won't. I mean, because a lot of times, as you said, you've got to get these folks out of there. Is, is a flood coming? Um, Tim, I just want to give a plug to the... Biggest things okay. uh, I've learned is uh, people, when they're hit with one of these disasters, are unbelievably resilient. They will take that disaster, they will ready themselves, they will get right back on and get going. And so uh, in a time in, in our country when things are so divided, there's no division whatsoever when there's a natural disaster. Everybody comes together. There's this resilience by those who've been victimized. There's this outpouring of love and, and thought and uh, religious um, affiliations that really want to help and make something happen. So. I think our country, quite frankly, is at its best when we encounter one of these things because we see the true nature of people and how great they can be. And it's a lesson that I've learned time and time again in responding to these disasters. Good point. The only closing thing I'd say is thanks to the School of Public Health here at Harvard because, you know, we've all done, all four of we governors have done some form of fellowship here. and. Uh, what I, my message, you know, continues to be, guess what? There's never been a time where it's more important to be dedicating yourself to solutions in public health because all of this is landing on your doorstep. I mean, all of this. And you've never had a generation of students, of people who are focusing on the mission of this school where your time and your timing is more important. It's all coming your way. So thank you for having this conversation. Well, I think that's uh, a great way to stop it. And uh, <laughs> I stop a bunch of governors from talking. <laughs> we'll continue afterwards. Turn off the cameras. <laughs> so I, I think uh, we should thank everyone for uh, showing up in person and online. And uh, it's been a great uh, conversation to have with everyone. Thank you very much. Thank you. This has been a production of the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org.
Thank you for sharing the forum.